100 years ago this Sunday, July the 11th, the war between the Irish Republican Army and the forces of the British Crown came to a provisional halt to pave the way for peace negotiations, which would eventually lead to the signing of the Anglo-Irish Treaty and the creation of the Irish Free State. The truce was agreed to on July the 8th and came into effect three days later in order to allow combatants on both sides of the conflict to adapt to the new situation. Violence persisted across the country and Westmead was no exception. In Street on July the 9th, a party of Royal Irish Constabulary policemen was attacked by gunmen and one constable was wounded. While on July the 11th, the RIC barracks in Castle Pollard was subjected to an hour and a half long barrage of gunfire by the IRA in what the police regarded as a deliberate attempt to take their lives right before the truce came into effect. The cessation of hostilities and the belief that the British government was caving into the IRA left the RIC facing an uncertain future, with the County Inspector for Westmead noting in August 1921 that the truce had loaded the dice against us. For both the IRA and the British military, it was a welcome opportunity to rest and refit, while for the general civilian population, it was a sign that the days of violence, reprisals and disruption of everyday life might be coming to an end. Discussing the advent of the truce nationally and locally for this second Westmead County Council Decade of Centenaries podcast is Dr Marie Coleman, Professor of Modern Irish History at Queen's University Belfast. Professor Coleman, a native of Castle Pollard, completed her PhD at University College Dublin in 1998. Her thesis focused on the Irish Revolution in County Longford, which formed the basis for a subsequent book. In her most recent research, Professor Coleman has explored the significance of the military service pensions collection at the Irish Military Archives, and the topic of Protestant depopulation in Longford during the Irish Revolution. Professor Coleman is joint editor of the esteemed journal Irish Historical Studies, and is a member of the Northern Ireland Office's Centenary Historical Panel. To begin our podcast, Professor Coleman outlines the political and military origins of the truce. Well, you could think about it, I suppose, in two ways. You could ask yourself two questions. First of all, why was there a truce? And secondly, why was there a truce in July? And the answer to the first goes back really to the previous autumn. The War of Independence had been going on in some form or other since January of 1919. And both, both sides, the British were aware that this situation in Ireland could not go on indefinitely. And we see the first efforts to come to some sort of peaceful settlement. The fir first peace feelers, I suppose, were sent out in the autumn of 1920 when Patrick Moylet, uh, a, a businessman based in London, but with Sinn Féin links, uh, uh, got in touch with intermediaries to sort of to, to, to feel, sound out the British government. That didn't go anywhere. There were various other efforts. The, the effort that came closest to some sort of peace was a mission undertaken by the Catholic Archbishop of Perth in Australia, Clune, uh, Archbishop Clune, in late December and early January 21. And he appears to have been working uh, largely on the, at the behest of the Prime Minister Lloyd George. And that indicates to us that the British were keen to uh, bring the situation in Ireland to some sort of conclusion. But the peace mission didn't go anywhere either. Of course, while all of this was going on, the War of Independence was, was gaining uh, considerable ground and the, the levels of fatalities were increasing throughout 21. But also in the background, you had the political 
settlement was working out where the British had passed the Government of Ireland Act in December 1920. And by May 1921, that had come into effect. By June 1921, the Northern Parliament was up and running. So that actually explains, answers the second part of the question. By July, by June, July 1921, from the British government's point of view, they had divided the Irish question into two parts. And from their perspective, they had solved the first part, the historically more awkward part of Ulster. That left them free to go and make peace with Southern Ireland. And that had, that was part of a longer process and a recognition going back to the autumn of 1920 that the Irish situation could not go on indefinitely. Just maybe to bring it back to a local level, Marie, uh, Porygogo Rourke has done extensive work on the truce and the days leading up to it, and he rails against the offloaded idea that there was this sort of bloodlust in the run-up to the ceasefire, with uh, both sides attempting to settle scores. So what, what's your view on the nature of violence in the days immediately before the cessation of hostilities? Well, I'm not convinced that that argument stands up to the statistics, particularly not in Ulster. And uh, one thing I think we have to be aware of is the War of, the war of Independence is we can hardly talk in a national sense. This is, is a very localised campaign and the experience in one area can be quite different elsewhere. But if anybody takes a look at the new compendium of fatalities during the revolution, the dead of the Irish revolution, recently compiled by Eunan O'Halpin and Dahi O'Croan, look at, the, at one day alone, the Sunday the 10th of July 1921, 34 deaths in Ireland, uh, I think 14 of those in Belfast alone. The truce had been already called at this point. Uh, Neville McCready had been to the Mansion House in Dublin on the previous, the day before, Saturday the 9th of July, they'd announced the truce was coming into effect on the 11th. Very hard to see anything other than uh, battalions and brigades across the country who probably had planned these engagements anyway, making sure that they got them in in time before they had to put down their arms. So I'm not, I'm not fully convinced. I see his point from the perspective that they didn't just think these engagements up off the top of their head. They, they required more planning. And I think these were engagements which were longer in the planning, but maybe there was a need to ensure that they got um, under the deadline of the 12 noon on Monday, the 11th of July. Okay, we'll look at two specific incidents, maybe. Um, one was an attack on a party of policemen uh, at street which was on the 9th of July, uh, 1921. Uh, one constable was injured in that attack. Now, I suspect that this was uh, Longford uh, orientated, or the, or the Longford IRA were responsible for this, as for many times they, they came across the border into that part of Westmead. What, what from your own research of Longford, what was uh, the Longford IRA's approach to that uh, build-up to the troops? I think uh, the Longford IRA, the high point of their campaign and their resistance was from November 1920 to February 21. By the time we get to the truce, the Longford IRA's uh, resistance was crumbling. Uh, Richard Mulcahy had a, a, a description of it uh, about how um, basically how dreadfully quiet it had become around the time of the truce. And you could see his disappointment there. That went back to a number of factors. Uh, crucially, Sean McKeown's arrest at Mullingar in early March 1921. 
had the plan to replace McKeown at leadership level with Sean Connolly worked out, they might have been able to overcome that. But of course, Connolly was killed in the Selton Hill ambush. So that, that took away a significant part of leadership at local level. There were other um, issues, though. There were, there were a number of um, Father Conlon, I think, and Mick Gormley were, were badly wounded. Gormley uh, shot, I think, blew off his leg or something when he it was a self inflicted accidental wound while cleaning his gun. Conlon was badly injured in an ambush. But there was a high rate of attrition from the activities, activity itself. They were also, as with all IRA brigades, they were running out of uh, ammunition. They had some arms, they had captured guns, but they didn't have anything to put in them. So there was, the, there was a, a, a problem with firepower there, as well as with manpower. But on the other side as well, the, the uh, Crown forces had become much more effective in countering the guerrilla tactics of the IRA. And particularly what we see in the spring and early summer of 1921 was much greater use of the army. The British Army's 5th Division, which was based around this Midland, the Midland area, worked in greater concert with the police forces. And there was a massive sweep through the Midlands in, uh, in around from about Easter until the truce. Around that time, uh, the, the, the army literally just surrounding areas and sweeping through it and lifting anybody suspected of being a Republican sympathizer. So it's a combination of uh, attrition within the Republican campaign, but also greater effectiveness from the British in what I suppose in modern parlance would be called counterinsurgency tactics. And of course, one one man who managed to avoid that uh, cavalry sweep uh, was James McGuire, and mm -hmm. uh, he he remained active locally and was very much the brains of what happened in Castle Pollard on the 11th of July 1921, shortly before the truce came into effect. Uh, can, can you set the scene for us um, in Castle Pollard on that day, uh, your native Castle Pollard, I should add, um, and, and how, how this attack came about uh, so close as it was to the truce? And, and what, what was the objective? Was it, as the RIC County Inspector said in his report at the, at the time, a deliberate attempt to uh, kill members of the police on uh, or an hour before the truce came into effect. Um, I'm glad you mentioned Jim McGuire there if for no other reason than he was a he was a great friend of my grandmother and it's uh, I, one of those regrets I have that um, she died while I was younger and I never really got the opportunity to talk to her. But as someone who had lived through this period, it would have been fascinating to get those uh, recollections. But your, your, uh, this, um, I suppose, case study of the Castle Pollard Barrack attacks, probably the last event in the War of Independence before the truce, uh, it encapsulate a number, uh, encapsulates a number of the points we have raised already. First of all, you, you point out rightly, Jim McGuire was the, the main force behind it, and both his Bureau of Military History statement and his pension application are some of the best sources we have for details on it. But you might ask yourself, well, why was Jim McGuire, why was a blow-in from Dunedin um, raiding the attack in, in barracks in Castle Pollard when Castle Pollard had its own perfectly respectable IRA men like Paddy McCabe and, and Jack Macken? And the answer is that they were in prison because of the, uh, the, the tactics of the Crown forces that we had mentioned already. Uh, so the, the Castle Pollard IRA had missed out, and, and you really see this in Paddy McCabe's Bureau of Military History statements, where it suddenly the activity ceases 
around uh, sort of end of 1920, early 1921. So we're already seeing the, imp the detrimental impact on the local IRA in Castle Pollard of these Crown Force tactics. Um, I think the other point is, uh, this being the, the last uh, probably uh, IRA operation before the truce, because the, the brigade activity report for the Mullingar Brigade states that they started firing at half past 10 and they ceased at noon, which of course was exactly when the truce came into effect. Um, but again, the, I think the action goes back to a point I made earlier in relation to the question about Porigoro O'Rourke's view on the um, last minute nature of some of these IRA attacks. The local IRA, whether the, the sort of Castle Pollard, the Niden uh, group, this, wasn't, this was something they had planned. There's an attack on the courthouse in Castle Pollard where the town hall now is in April 1921. And that was a ruse to get the Crown forces to come out, to, to the police in particular to come out, but the police didn't fall for that ruse. So what we can say about this engagement was it, it, it was planned. They were looking for an opportunity. Jim McGuire talks about laying in wait around Gillardstown between Castle Pollard and Collinstown in the hope that some of the police patrols that were known to pass would pass by and they might ambush them. So they had been looking for their opportunity. Now, again, I think probably the, the clock was running out and uh, maybe the possibly the Crown forces were a bit lax in their um, their own security measures on the morning of the truce. Uh, I can't say that for certain, but you'd have to speculate that, that might have been an issue. Um, with regard to the aim of the attack, um, the barrack attacks that were more likely to prove fatal were, were ones which would have involved um, serious uh, bombing or, or other uh, incendiary attacks on police barracks than just shooting at them. I mean, the, the police could just uh, stay in a barricaded barracks and hopefully the IRA would fire a few pot shots at them and they'd go away. The likelihood the honey of the police were going to be uh, fatally wounded unless they did something really stupid on that day is, is quite low, I think. My sense is it's probably more, um, not so much opportunistic as symbolic, uh, and maybe a, a, an effort to literally send a shot across the bows of the police to let them know that the IRA were there and that they should, um, they should keep well out of their way. I, I think that issue of fatalities, you just have to look at the record of the IRA in Westmead, and there aren't a very high number of Crown Force or other fatalities in Northwest Mead. In fact, most of the engagements are around, particularly around Southwest Mead, around Moat and Athlone. So I, I don't think the local IRA possessed, whether it was a lack of arms and ammunition or um, other incendiary power, they, they didn't have much of a much success in fatal attacks on the Crown Forces. And unless some of the crown, some of the police had been stupid enough to walk outside the barracks or um, put themselves in in the, in the crossfire that morning, I don't think that attack was ever going to be proved fatal. And so, the, the crown forces themselves and the different branches of it. How, what was their reaction to the calling of the truce? How did the RIC locally see it, for instance? And how how did the army see it? I know I remember from reading. Uh, General Judwine's uh, uh, The History of Fifth Division, there's a reference to the truce uh, uh, that the senior officers disliked the, the term truce. 
because it, it conferred a sort of legitimacy on the IRA as competence. Mm -hmm. They might have disliked the term, but I very much doubt they disliked the terms. Uh, from the army's perspective, the, again, to go back to the question you started with of why there was a truce, the British government was running up against time as well. Under the provisions of the Government of Ireland Act, if something didn't happen in the South, the British were going to be forced with the option of going down the seriously coercive route of bringing administratively putting Ireland under Crown colony rule and militarily bringing in martial law. The army would have had to play a much bigger role in that martial law and that they did not want to do. While the chief, the, the head of the army in our of the British army in Ireland, uh, uh, Neville McCready had no time for the Irish. He certainly had no desire to be the one responsible for bringing in martial law in what at the time, and we have to accept this, whether we uh, accept whether we want to think that it should have been or not, this was an inter still an integral part of the United Kingdom. And I think the army would have been quite happy that they didn't have to resort to that extra level of uh, martial law because they would have been the ones responsible for it. It would have had backfired very badly on Britain's reputation internationally. I think public opinion domestically in Britain would not have taken very well to it either. And certainly the king, who was already raising serious concerns about the actions of forces in uh, acting in his name in Ireland would, would certainly uh, have been, I think, had very cold feet at the alternative to a truce in Ireland. We might end with this, Marie. Um, the the truce itself and and the truce period that followed, where where does it sit in terms of the broader national uh, commemorative framework, and and what what should we be looking at in the in the next say six to nine months about how how, how did life change? Was there, you know, was there a sense of relief locally? What did the IRA do? I know, for instance, uh, they set up a training camp outside Delvin at Renla. Um, what what other activities uh, were, were ongoing and how how did that lead up to say the evacuation of the of the British military in, in early 1922? Well, one point I make first, and I'm conscious here of being uh, speaking to you from Belfast, is the truce was by no means observed island wide. If you look at the death toll for the rest of 1921, and especially in in the north and in Belfast, it's very hard to see any truce operating in the north. Um, it is much more, uh, I suppose, a characteristic of the southern counties. There was a, there are breaches of the truce, and some of the Republican, say the Republican courts, started to operate more in the open. Uh, we see this phenomenon of the trucellier, the, um, uh, the the people who who suddenly joined the IRA when it was safe to do so, or allegedly did anyway. Um, what the downside from the IRA, and this became very obvious at the time of the, of the treaty later in December, was they did come out of hiding and their, I suppose their advantage of anonymity was lost, which would have made any return to the same type of guerrilla warfare in 1922 after the treaty, had the treaty been rejected, it would have been very difficult for them to do that. I think we should all we should not leave out the civilian population of Ireland, which had suffered quite significantly in two and a half years of burnings of towns like Balbriggan and the centre of Cork City. 
uh, assaults, fatal assaults on innocent civilians like um, uh, Mrs. Quinn in Galway, the truce must have came as a massive relief to the civilian population of Ireland. I think there was probably a general sense of immediate relief, but a tentative wait and see policy to see what would come of the treaty negotiations in December 1921.